Thank you, Jeff. Um, if you have met Matt at Trexler uh, from UCLA and you're wondering, uh, I am the Batman and he is my Robin. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, he, he's a dear friend of mine and I, it's, a, it's an honor and a privilege uh, to minister in this city and on these campuses together. And I love uh, doing it in this denomination because it doesn't just allow me to be a, uh, a guest in this church, but a partner with your church. Uh, to minister in these significant places uh, like USC, USC and UCLA. And uh, what we usually do on the campus is our main thing is to open up God's Word with students and expose them both to the gospel and to the counsel of God for their lives. And so uh, if you want to know what RUF is, it's, it's what we're about to do right now. And so I'm going to teach this morning from Genesis chapter 29. Uh, if you want to turn there in your bulletin or in your Bible... I'll read the text for us. This is uh, in the middle of Jacob's story. Some familiar things have happened to him thus far, and we find him uh, on the run. It says this, Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. So Laban said to Jacob, Because you're my kinsman, Should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you for seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. So you stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but only a few days because of the love that he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah, and he brought her to Jacob, and he went went into her. And Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. So in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so, and he completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also and he loved Rachel way more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not wanted, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Reuben for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction For now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son. And because the Lord has heard that I am hated, He has given me this son. So she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son. And now said, Now now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and she bore a son. And this time she said, I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah, and then she ceased bearing. 
This is God's Word. If you're not familiar with the story of Jacob, uh, Jacob to me is one of the most um, uh, interesting figures in the Old Testament to study and look at his life because uh, he is so familiar to our everyday experience here. And when you begin to talk about Christianity with people uh, in Los Angeles, they begin to wonder uh, if this, you're just expressing your own personal interests, your own personal worldview, and commonly think, well, that's just nice for your own particular life. But what Jacob commends to us and puts before us is that Christianity can be for anybody. Because what people often think when you invite them into the gospel and you expose them to faith is that they think that you're asking them uh, to drop living life this way and become a very good religious person. But when you notice about Jacob's life is that there's no admirable parts. I mean, if you study Abraham, you study Moses, you study David, uh, there's moments of sin, but there's also moments of admirable faith. Uh, There's moments that are commendable, and then there's moments that are to be exposed. There are no commendable moments in Jacob's life. And what it tells us is that wherever you are this morning, however far you feel from this faith, however... uh, you know, far you feel on the the doubt plane and struggling with whether or not your life lines up with Christianity or not, Jacob's life invites you to know this. Wherever you are this morning, Jesus is available for you to take him as he is and to embrace this faith. And it comes to this through Jacob's life, through a very familiar thing that we do in this city, and that's through chasing life. Because what we'll learn about Jacob's life is that his whole journey has been about finding something that will make him him, that will give him an identity, that will make him be fulfilled. And what we learn is that uh, Jacob's life, because it is empty, because it is full of void, he is on one true chase. So let's follow Jacob, let's learn through it, this text, through these, observing these three things. Uh, one, that there's a chase. Uh, two, there's an inevitable wall that you hit when you enter this chase. Uh, But three, let's learn and find some freedom for this chase. So first, there's a chase. Uh, What you want to know right away is that Jacob, his whole life, is about a chase and that he's on a chase. And the chase winds him up on the steps of Laban, his uncle, where he's going to look into the women and figure out if this is going to be the end of his chase. But the question is, if you don't know Jacob's life, how did he get here? He got in this situation because of what's previously happened to Jacob. Uh, Jacob was the younger of two twins, his older brother Esau, and Jacob had lived his whole life in the shadow of Esau. Uh, his father had loved the elder over the younger. He'd get, he All the privileges, all the affection, all the admiration of the father had always gone to Esau. He was the more brute strength brother. He was uh, the more manly of the two, if you want to say. He was the alpha of the two. And so his whole life, uh, Jacob had been in the shadow of his younger brother, wondering if his father really loved him. And so feeling like his father would never love him, he went to deceive his brother out of his birthright, and then to deceive his father out of the blessing and admiration of his father. Both lead to his own exile, where his mother says, you must flee or you will die. So Jacob has to leave his family, has to leave all of his inheritance, has to leave his mother, the only person who had ever given him full affection. And he's on the run, and he finds himself finding home with his uncle Laban. And he comes to his uncle, 
and sees his two daughters and right away realizes, I want to marry one of these two daughters. And here's what we're told in verse 16 and 17. It says, Now Laban had two daughters, and the name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And then in verse 17, it describes the two girls for us. Leah's eyes were weak. Um, that doesn't mean like she couldn't see like from far away or that she was like nearsighted. It probably is a reference to her figure, meaning Leah probably had um, cross eyes or she may have been blind in one eye or maybe she had protruding eyes or something like that. And we get that because the next phrase about Rachel is it says that she was beautiful in form and appearance. Uh, the Hebrew word for form, uh, toar, is the Hebrew word for figure. Uh, the author is trying to get across to us that, that, that Lee, uh, Rachel was probably very sexually attractive, very physically appealing, and Jacob is instantly in love with her. He's absolutely head over heels for her because what happens is he comes and says, I want this woman and I'll work for her for seven years. Now, every commentator and scholar in the ancient Near East sort of describes that what you typically paid uh, for a wife was between 25 and 30 shekels. Um, that's about a two and a half years max wages. And Jake is willing to pay three times the typical wage because he's so head over heels. He's so caught off guard. He's so blown away by who she is that he says, I'll do whatever it takes to have her. That he enters into this horrible deal. And then what happens is he works for seven years and it says they only go by for like a few days because of how obsessed he is with having Rachel. And then it says this in verse 21. Jacob goes to Laban and he says, Give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. Now every rabbinical scholar has often struggled with this verse particularly because of how abrupt and to the face that it is. Because what Jacob is saying here literally is he's saying, I've done the seven years, I've paid my dues, give me my wife because I want to have sex with her now. And here's what we learn about Jacob. Through his abrupt approach, through his obsession for seven years, through his dealings with Rachel, that he has looked upon this woman as the answer to all of his problems. That what he sees is he realizes that this woman is the answer to the longing that I never got out of my brother, that I never got out of my father, that has left me void and empty through all of my life. This woman is going to fulfill it. And here, let me say two things. One, this is how you begin to learn to read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. If the Old Testament is hard for you to understand and uh, at times doesn't make sense for you, because of the stories and you wonder what does this teach me about Christianity. The New Testament often describes the Christian life this way. That you and I are called to put our faith in Christ. But what we typically do is that we put our faith and our emotions and our trust in other things in this world. And the New Testament describes that as sin. More particularly as idolatry. That we are prone to worship and put all of our emotions in other things. And what it talks about is that we ought to return or repent from that and return to Christ and put our faith in Him. And that's what we learn in principle form. And what you're getting here is the same exact same thing in story form. That you and I, the human heart, what is prone to do more than anything is to give its life to some sort of chase that will fulfill it. There was an article a couple years ago in the New York Times 
called The Enduring Hunt for Human Value. And what the author does is, Tony Schwartz, as he said, uh, Michael Phelps, um, these billionaires on Wall Street, uh, these politicians who give all this money, all this time, all this effort to run in a campaign that they're never going to win. He says, well, what do they have in common? He says, all of these people from all sects of life that are giving all of their time, all their emotions to everything are on the th- something that binds us all together. And he says this, as little as these very people have in common, their shared core hunger is for value. See, once our basic needs are met, we human beings arguably crave value above everything else. We, want, we each desperately want to matter to feel a sense of worthiness. See, behind the emotions of your life, behind the drive of our anxiety, behind the drive of our need for control, behind the drive of our desire for power, is, a, is an innate value for longing. Excuse me, for innate hunt for value. And our longing for value is often the narrative that drives the story of our life. And if you want to learn who you are, if you want to be an honest person in this world and in this city, you've got to figure out what chase that you're on. That what you're looking to in this world, that what you're going after, that's going to give you value, that's going to tell you, I'm a worthy mom, that I'm a valuable man, that I'm a significant brother, that I'm a dutiful son. What is it in your life that you're after that can give, if you were to get it, were to tell you, you are a full and worthy you? Because what Tony Schwartz, who's not a Christian at all, and Jacob have in common is they're exposing this idea that we are on a chase for something. And the obsession of our life is to find that chase. And that's the first point, that we, all of us are on a chase. But secondly, we have to learn and understand that there's a wall that we hit when we're in this chase. Because what happens to Jacob? Here's what happens in this text, is that uh, he meets his match in Laban. Because he goes after Rachel and is sure that she's going to be the answer to his problems. But sure enough, what happens is that he thinks he completes the seven years and he wakes up and it's Leah. And here's what's so astonishing about this is that while Jacob is mad, he doesn't fight back. Did you notice in this text, it says that Jacob comes to him and he says, what is this thing you have done? Laban gives him an answer and then Jacob completes another seven years. Now why? Now, how did, why did Jacob get away, or excuse me, why did Laban get away with this? Well, we're told that he gathered all the people together in verse 22 and made a feast. Uh, that's probably uh, a Hebrew idiom for a booze feast. That would have lasted a couple days. But even still, that's probably how he tricked him that to not pay attention, that this is not Rachel, that this is actually Leah. But what he actually does is he says something else that shuts Jacob up that realizes Chase is going nowhere, that stops him in the moment, that keeps him from going further on the chase. And it's this moment in verse 26 and 27, and this is the denouement. You see, Jacob had come, and he started his chase by deceiving his brother out of the birthright and deceiving his father to get something that was only privy to the older before the younger. So he comes and he's going to marry Rachel, who's so beautiful, who's so elegant, but she's the younger sister. And in verse 26, 
and 27, here's what Jacob, Laban says to Jacob. Why did you deceive me? Laban said, it is not done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. And like a dagger to the heart, like a wall to the chase, Jacob is stopped because he realizes he's now a victim on the very chase, on the very schemes that he's been doing his whole life. Robert Alter, in his commentary on this text, uh, notes a rabbinical uh, scholar who comments on this passage this way. He says, I called out Rachel in the dark. But he imagines a situation where uh, Jacob is furious with uh, Leah and angry of the situation. And he imagines the situation this way. I called out Rachel in the dark, but you answered, why did you do that to me? Leah said to him, your father called Esau in the dark. And you answered, why did you do that to him? You see, what had happened to Jacob is the very thing that happened to his own father, Isaac. They both called out in the middle of the night to somebody who they thought it was somebody else. They had come back. And here's what you learn. The chase that we go after will always hit a wall. But it's not just with Jacob. Because we've got to see what happens with Leah too. Because here's what happens to Leah. She's on a chase just like Jacob. Because Leah, who had lived in the shadow of her older sister the whole time, we're told in verse 16, she's the uglier one. She's the less attractive one. If she's going to get married, it's going to take her father tricking somebody and dumping her off on a spouse. And so what she's going to do is she's going to look in the same way that Jacob's looking to Rachel to fill the void in her own life. She's going to look to Jacob to fill that void in her life. And we see this with the naming of her children. She takes her children and it says in verse 32... Her first child, Reuben, is the Hebrew word for to see. And she says, because the Lord has looked upon me, for now my husband will love me. She's doing this because she's married to a man who only sees her younger sister, who only sees the one whose shadow she's often lived in. That doesn't fill the void, so they have another child. Um, the name uh, Simeon uh, is the, for the, from the Hebrew word to hear. Uh, she says, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also, thinking, well, um, maybe my husband will now listen to me. Maybe now he will hear my cry, my longing for affection, more than my sister's. That doesn't work, so they have another child uh, for, who's named Levi, the word to attach or connect, um, because she says, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. And what she's doing is she's hoping the birth of these children will now finally make her the loved one. And she's hoping, now a man will look at me and he will care for me. And if he does this, then I'll be somebody. Then I'll finally feel loved. Then I'll finally feel worthy of something. And with each child being born, the chase is getting harder, the longing is growing deeper, and the void is growing thicker. And it's all in the shadow of the very girl who she's grown up in. And she's utterly in hell. And it, here's what we learn. Let me make two comments and a lesson to learn about the wall that you hit with this chase. When I taught on this passage at USC, um, the immediate reaction um, from a lot of girls 
was that they hate the Old Testament, and this is why they hate Christianity, because it's so belittling of women. And they hated how women were used in this text, and they thought it was so uh, mean and belittling of, of uh, Leah to be referred to this way. And so, um, two things that I, I said to them that I'll say to you. One, this situation has only made Jacob's life more complicated. It in no way is the Bible uh, commending polygamy. In no way is the Bible commend commending uh, patriarchy here in this situation. In no way is the Bible commending primogeniture. It's just exposing how the values of the world that we want to do always end up hitting us into walls. And when it talks about the women being um, sort of uh, described this way, I mean, aren't you glad that we live in Los Angeles, a place where a woman's looks and figure just does nothing for her career and does nothing for her social value and our gyms are empty and um, however you look just makes your life normal? I'm kidding. Uh, but what I... Here's what you learn, is that we've never gotten over the struggles and the significance of these stories in Scripture. That you and I, in this city, in this time and place, are still wrestling with the same things. So that if you ever wonder, is Christianity losing relevance? Is the gospel losing its place in culture? Is faith lost its place in our relationships? The answer is absolutely no. Because you and I, and the way we go out in this city, and we try to figure out who we are, and we try to make it in this world with a career, we try to make it in this world socially, we try to make it in these towns financially and economically, these are the same walls, the same chases that we've been on for thousands and thousands of years, trying to make sense of a world without God, and wondering whether or not He should be at the center of our world, and we, do, we owe Him all of our life and worship. But here's what this text teaches us both to Jacob and to us, that we can learn. At the base note and at the bottom of all of our chases is always going to be cosmic disappointment. That whatever you're chasing, it will always have a wall. Tony Schwartz in that article that I read you earlier about the enduring hunt for human value, he admits that uh, in that article that he was also the, um, the author of the, uh, the famous book with Donald Trump, um, the Art of the Deal. And he said this. He said, I made more money in that book than most people will make in a lifetime. And then he describes his life after that book's success, providing relief from financial anxiety, uh, unbelievable material well-being. He says, but it did not fuel any enduring sense of value. To the contract, the fact that so much external success didn't deliver what I'd always imagined it would, it, would it left me feeling empty and bewildered. What did it prompt? Well, it was a search for more sustainable source of value that has only continued for the rest of my life. See, here, I, we're going to come back to Leah, but he, Leah's life here personifies something that somebody else said, and I'll just say it the way that they said it. That whatever you're chasing in life, you always think you go to bed with Rachel, but you always wake up with Leah. See, we are so sure that this marriage, that this, this project in my career, that this relationship, that this move, that this house, 
that this material success, that this social affirmation is going to give me what I want. We're so sure, and it's going to bed with Rachel, but in the morning it's always Leah. And if, unless you understand that base note at the bottom of everything you're after in this life, you'll end up like Tony Schwartz, bewildered and confused, and spend your life sure, maybe it's not my brother, maybe it's not my father, but maybe it's got to be these women. And you'll be like Jacob and wonder, why won't the chase end? Because it's always taken me somewhere, and it's always taken me to these things, and they always end up in the most hellacious places. And unless you understand that that base note exists, you'll, you'll do a couple things. One, you'll blame your circumstances. But if you blame your circumstances, you'll always think you need more. And that makes you a fool. Or what you can do is you can blame yourself. You can blame the chase and the walls that you hit always on yourself, and that will make you hate yourself and only lead to unnecessary depression. Or what you could do when you hit the walls is you can blame life and say, getting something and filling this void, it's not possible. But that only makes you a cynic. Or what you can do is you can hit the wall in life and you can finally realize that the void that you're trying to fill, that the chase that you're after, it's not possible in this world. And nobody said that better than C.S. Lewis when he put it this way. Most people, if they'd really learned how to look in their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that is never given to them. See, there's all sorts of things that this world offers to give you, but it never keeps its promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, these are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning will ever satisfy. And I'm not speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or trips. I'm speaking of the very best possible ones. See, there's always something that we have grasped at in the first moment of longing, which just fades away into reality. The spouse may be a good spouse. The scenery has been an excellent one. It has turned out to be a good job. But it, the thing that always thought we thought was going to be the center of it, it always evades us. And I want to tell you this morning, I'm not sure what's gone on in your career, in your relationships, or other personal things in the last year or two. But if you've hit a wall... What C.S. Lewis is trying to tell us and what Jacob's life tells you is that's God's grace in your life. That when you're chasing something in this world, the most awful thing that can actually happen to you is, to be, is, to, is for God to never let you hit a wall. To never let the water hit your face. To never ever have the dose of reality that draws you back into sobriety and realize that the chase, even if you get it, will only leave you bewildered. See, the core that you want to hold you up in life, there's, you're putting too much weight on it. And a chase, it will only hit a wall, and the wall is God's grace to you to free you from the chase. See, there's a chase, there's a wall, but it's a, it is a gracious wall. And thirdly, it shows us a way to freedom, to get out of a chase. So let's learn this. Let's learn the freedom from the chase. And we learn it by what Leah did and why Leah could do it. See, Leah, she ends her chase in verse 35 when she, she conceives the last son, the fourth one, and she names it Judah. And she says, because this time I will praise the Lord. See, she says, with this kid, it's going to be different. This child is going to be a different story. With this one, my heart, my narrative, my emotions, everything is going to be different. 
And she uses the name Lord, the covenant name of God, not Elohim, the way the ancient Near Eastern people referred distantly to God. She's referring to the God who came after Abraham in grace, the God who came after Isaac and made a promise, the God who will not stop after Israel and comes down to us all the way into the gospel through grace and incarnates himself ultimately in the Son. She's calling on that Lord. And she's saying, this time, I'm going to put all of my emotions, I'm going to put all of my hope onto that Lord himself. And she says, why? Because I want to be free. And when, when, when Leah puts, she names the child Judah, here's what she's doing. She's looking at all of the chases in her life. She's doing what you need to do with your heart and looking at all those things that drag your anxiety, that drag your worry, that keep you awake at night and says, I'm not going to chase those anymore. I'm going to put all of that hope, I'm going to put it on the God who comes after me in grace because I want to be free. Um, you know, in light of the spring, the, the Marvel phenomena with Marvel sort of MCU, my kids just love those movies. I don't know if you've seen them. Uh, one of their favorites that was really good was uh, Doctor Strange with Benedict Cumberpatch, if you saw or didn't see that movie. But towards the end of the movie, um, Benedict Cumberbatch's character is, uh, he's learned the mystical arts and controls this thing called the Time Stone, which can control time and make time stand still. And uh, there's this evil Lord uh, Dormammu who's going to destroy the world, and uh, Doctor Strange realizes he's got to save the world. And so he realizes he can't physically overcome this Lord, so here's how he's going to defeat him. And they have this interaction. Dr. Strange comes to him and says, Dormammu, I've come to bargain. And Dormammu kills him. And and Dr. Strange comes back and says, Dormammu, I've come to bargain. And he kills him again. And he comes right back and says, Dormammu, I've come to bargain. And Dormammu goes, what is happening? And Dr. Strange says, since you gave Cassilius power from your dimension, I thought I would bring some power from my own. See, this is time. Endless loot time. Dormammu comes and says, stop, make it stop. You can't do this forever. And Dr. Strange says, actually I can. See, this is how things are now. You and me trapped in this moment, endlessly in time. And Dormammu begs him, in this, please in this, you will never win. And Dr. Strange says, no, I won't. But I can lose again and again and again and again and again forever. And that makes you my prisoner. And Dormammu says, no, stop, I beg you. Please make this stop. Please set me free. See, the chase in life for your heart is an endless loop of time. Producing the same results of emptiness, of walls that will never tell you who you are, that will never give you the affirmation, that will never hold its promise, that will always hold a tease on your life. And what Leah is saying right now is she's saying, I want to be set free. And I'm gonna, I am going to make it stop. See, what is it this morning that controls your heart, that's controlled your emotions this spring, that has made the gospel a little dimmer, that has made life a little heavier, that has controlled you and told you you're nothing unless you do this or have this. Because what you can do by, the, by faith through grace of the gospel this morning in this moment is you can begin to take your heart and your hope off of that and begin to put it on Jesus. 
and to put it on the hope of who he will be and who he promises to make you and get ultimate liberation. And this is what Leah does. And why does she do it? Here's why you, you can do it. It's because of who this baby is. See, the fourth baby is named Judah. And what do we learn about Judah? You begin to read the Bible and realize that Judah is going to be the, the promised child through who the seed of the Savior will come. And when you read the Gospel of Matthew and you read the genealogy of Jesus, whose, ch whose child is in there? It's Leah's. And it's out of this child, out of the one who will praise the Lord, out of this one, is who hope and salvation of the world comes through. And, and we get such a picture of why you can put your hope in the gospel. Because he, what God does with Rachel and Leah is he, he shows us the values of the kingdom of God. See, there's a beautiful daughter who has all of the physical attributes, all of the admiration of society. And there's an ugly duckling. And who does God say, who's the promised salvation going to come through? It's through, the, it's through the neglected one. It's through the ugly one. It's through the one who the world will have no value on. Why? Because one day there would be a Savior who would come, who would be despised, who would never be looked upon as beautiful, who even in his most glorious moment was stricken, smitten with shame. No one beheld him in glory. Why? Because that's how the salvation of the world, the reversing of the values of this world is going to come. Which means when you begin to put hope of your heart on things that make no sense in this world, that's when you get set free. See, the values of the kingdom, they don't make sense in this world unless Jesus is going to return in resurrection form and heal everything and make, make himself king over this whole creation. Look, all of this, this morning, it makes no sense unless that's going to happen. But when that's going to happen, what's, what we're going to learn is that everything everybody lived for was upside down. And everybody who lived for the kingdom of God was actually living right side up the whole time. And when you begin to see the world this way, to realize that when you put your hope, when you put your resources, when you put your money, when you put your time, not on things that give you immediate fulfillment now, but on the hope deferred of the kingdom to come, Listen, that is a kingdom that will never leave you empty, that will never return void, that will never, ever, ever let you down. And you can do that, and you can put your value in that, and you can be set free right now in this moment in, in Jesus. Oh, the beauty of the gospel is this. Look, whatever you are, it's never the values of religion, of how, you, how beautiful you come in. It's in humility that you come and find love. See, the, the irony of this text for us to read is that there, is, there are chases that you realize that you go to bed with Rachel, but it's Leah in the morning. But it's sometimes in the gospel you begin to realize this. And sometimes in life you begin to realize this. You go to bed with Rachel, and it's not just you wake up with Leah. You realize you're Leah. That you're the unloved one. And that who you are if you're honest, has been somebody who has continually been like a dog who keeps going back to its own vomit. But you know, in the gospel, you go to bed with Leah, excuse me, you go to bed as Leah, but in Jesus, you always wake up a Rachel. See, however you are, Jesus never sees you as a Leah.
He always sees you as a Rachel, robed in his righteousness, adored in him. Listen, make that your identity. Let that in your chase this morning and be set free. Freed in Christ, in the gospel, to know whenever he sees you, he never wakes up and goes, who are you? What have you done? He says, oh, my beloved bride, let us dine together. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we all want to be set free. Because our hearts, whether we're ministers, Lord, whether we're elders, whether we're scholars, we just can't help. Our heart can't help producing idols like a factory every moment, looking for things to affirm us, fulfill us. Lord, end our chase, not with misery, but with fulfillment in Christ. To know what's coming, Lord, is a banquet table where we will dine as the bride and be told, not in shock and horror, who are you, but my, my beloved bride. Lord, in Christ, set us free from that chase. Wherever we are in the spiritual journey, whether we've known you forever or this morning, Lord, we want to come to know you. Make Jesus beautiful. In your name, amen.